Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Josh Marshall podcast. Uh, you know, today we talk a lot of things tied in one fashion or another to Dobbs and Roe and the politics surrounding those things. Uh, a whole bunch of different things, but you know, kind of every, almost everything going on right now is in some sort of gravitational relationship to these big Supreme Court decisions. Whether it is, you know, what happens. In, st- in states around the country or how it impacts the uh, midterm elections. Uh, my co-host, uh, Kate Riga, we're going we're gonna to talk about this in a, in a little bit. She's got a big piece coming up about how, on the one hand, the demise of Roe sort of sets the clock back 50 years. On the other hand, the medical clock has kept moving. And the Supreme Court cannot set back the medical clock, that there's all sorts of different uh procedures and technologies. I mean, some of the most obvious ones are, are, the, are the various kinds of, uh, you know, for, for centuries, there have been medicinal abortion-inducing medicines. They've often been very unsafe and not very reliable. Obviously, these days, we have ones that are very safe and very reliable. But there's also, in, you know, this is something that, that uh, Kate has been reporting on, that one of the things when uh, Roe created a constitutional right to an abortion, which I believe was, I believe the row was 1973, so 49 years ago. In addition to giving women a right to, uh, to receive an abortion, have an abortion, it also made it possible to do research. What's the best way to do an abortion? How do you do it safely? How do you do it in a way that uh, has, you know, as few possible uh, medical complications as possible. One's uh, how do you do it in a way that is most uh, respectful of the dignity of the woman receiving an abortion and uh, approaches, you know, uh, the, the dignity of the fetus, you know, because because uh, in in everybody's different, but um, many for many women who have an abortion, that is all part of the equation. They wanted to be. They want to be treated with dignity. You know, sometimes you have these. You know, kind of horror story late term abortions where where a woman finds out that that uh, a you know that there is some you know kind of catastrophic uh, medical problem. There's some reason that um, that it's clear the, the 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 fetus will not survive childbirth. You know, all these kinds of things. And uh, as as we know. 
you know, there's this sort of right wing myth that, uh, you know, women are kind of walking around seven months pregnant and all of a sudden they see like a, a good deal on a vacation. I'm like, hey, I'm going to get an abortion. I, I didn't I got a, I got a great plane fare. We know it's not like that, that it that that it is, again, almost always because there is some catastrophic medical issue either for the for the for the fetus uh, for the mother and in those cases it's obviously a profound loss and and there are all sorts of ways that how do you just as we do in all sorts of other medical procedures how do you research and figure out the best way to do these medical procedures for the best interests of everybody involved and not just their narrowly physical health but their mental health and uh their dignity as people and all that kind of stuff so we're going to be talking about all sorts of aspects of this evolving issue again both the the sort of the substance of abortion rights in this country but also the politics of it which are 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 um are so in front of us right now not just because we just had this decision come down uh what i guess it's six weeks ago now yeah so give, give or take something like that but also that we have this midterm election coming up and uh you know you may have seen uh, kate and i have been working on this row and reform list now this builds on something that we've been talking about now, you know, really since May when we when we knew not to a certainty but basically knew that this decision was coming down, you know, we even knew kind of the the text of it more or less. Um to try to get Democrats uh lined up and get everybody, you know, get everybody, get all 48 non Kirsten Cinema Joe Manchin Democrats lined up on supporting a row bill and committing to suspending the filibuster rules to actually allow that to get a vote. And if you do that, then you can go to voters and say, this is just down, you know, you need two senators. You need to hold the House and you need to add two senators. And then you can pass this bill next January. And so we have created this list just to go through and all 50 senators, where exactly do they stand? Have they committed to do this? Um, are they in the category of, you know, they're probably on board, but they have not been willing to just kind of tell their constituents yes or no? Uh, are they just refusing to comment? Or we ended up finding uh, two who are, there are, you know, as I said, we went into this knowing that there are two senators who are categorically opposed to any changes in the filibuster rules. Uh, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema. So that you're really dealing with, in, in essence, 48 Democratic senators. And we found two of those senators who, again, I'm pretty sure they eventually come around if 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 their constituents really press them. But for now, at least, they're they're not just not being totally clear. They're not just they haven't made a clear statement. They're kind of saying like, "Hey, I we I don't know if we want to mess with the filibuster. Filibuster is important, you know." No, they're not saying no. And again, I'm pretty sure they'll say yes, but. For the moment, they're not. So we have created this list, which I think we mentioned to you last week. Uh, but now we have revised the list. We have uh, made it a lot more user friendly. You can find out really quickly where everybody stands. And if you find out your senator uh, needs a little nudge, you know where to you know you know where to get the information. And I should say this is you know our our. Uh, our tech team, and and actually also uh, one uh, TPM reader who I is it I think his I think his initials are 
JK. I may be wrong about that. Uh, in any case, our tech team did a lot of work on it. And really, the legwork is uh, my, my co-host Kate did of going through and kind of, you know, going through every single senator. Have they have they committed? Have they not committed? Blah, 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 blah. Uh, uh, Kate and I worked on it together. So you, you should check that out. It's at the site and uh, it is it is a it's an important it it is an important piece of work. It is also a really important thing because having done this for a really long time and having done these kinds of lists before, I can assure you that if Democrats get all 48 senators lined up and committed to do this, the chances of them holding the Congress will go up substantially. I know that sounds like a, a, a big claim. I'm highly confident of it. And not because of what shows up like on our list here at TPM, but that will allow Democrats around the country to say, you know, why is it important you vote for us? Because we have the commitments lined up. And if we achieve these things, if we control the House, if we add two Democratic senators, we're going to pass this law in January. And what the Supreme Court did in June, we're going to reverse it as the result of this election. That is obviously very important substantively for anybody who cares about abortion rights and reproductive rights. But it is also a big thing that will substantially, I even think, greatly increase the chances that uh, Democrats will uh, win this election. One other thing I want to mention to you, we are, we're going to be off next week, Kate and I. Actually, Kate is going on vacation uh, to some like, you know, uh, a, a, a lovely place to, to spend a week. So she'll be off. I'll be here, but you know, it's not, it's not the Kate and Josh show without Kate. So we're going to be off next week. So just, just a heads up, uh, just so you know, there's not going to be an episode next week. And uh, one other thing, let me remind you that the Josh Marshall Podcast brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. It's peak ice coffee season, that wonderful time of year where you start planning your next ice coffee order while walking home with your current ice coffee. And it's all fun and vibes until your July credit card statement arrives. Luckily, there's no need to go cold turkey when saving money is as easy as switching to cold brew with the Grady's. Grady's Cold Brew Bean Bag Kit. You can brew 36 servings of refreshing New Orleans-style iced coffee for just a buck a cup. That's a major savings compared to buying it at your local shop. Plus, you'll have a fridge stocked with coffee when your next craving hits, which I'm guessing is any minute now. Ready to give it a swirl? Save 25% off at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's 25% off at Grady's Coldbrew.com with promo code TPM. And I'll tell you, you know, I use these uh, beanbag kits and they're so cool. You know, you get like a bag, a kind of like a, a, a special, uh, you know, plastic reinforced sealable to top Grady's bag. And you toss in these these four uh, beanbag things, you know, little, little pouches. You fill it with water, you leave it for 12 hours and boom, you're good to go. It actually works. Um, and I remember, you know, we... Uh, in an earlier incarnation of this show, we actually interviewed we 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 uh, interviewed Grady one time, and I guess this you know a lot of the other competitors have this now these little kind of like bean bag you know the skull bag thing, but I guess this is like a technological innovation of 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 Grady, so it's you know it's 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 a big thing. Uh, so uh, Kay Riga, what are we what are we talking about? Yeah, so let's start with uh, there's been some recent polling and recent kind of releases by prognosticators, read the midterms, that in some ways have kind of cut back a little bit at 
what's been the conventional wisdom for months, which is, you know, huge red wave coming, Democrats are screwed, you know, dismal headwinds, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, there's been one of these from Nate Silver and and some of the various kind of uh, those kind of decidery places. And a lot of them have had the Senate basically 50-50 could go either way. And then the House uh more well in hand for the Republicans. That's kind of been the trend that we're seeing. And that alone is kind of interesting because that conventional wisdom has held that Republicans are going to sweep Congress easily, you know, and now we're already kind of taking a half step back of like, well, maybe they'll take the House easily, but the Senate is going to be a battle. And I think it's interesting because we're at this weird amorphous early point where all this stuff is kind of speculative because it's still the summer. It's before a lot of people are even paying attention. It's before a lot of states have too much polling going on in them even. Um, So it just kind of leaves you to observe the trends that you see. But one thing about the Senate that's interesting and which is why this kind of rings as potentially true to me is that you've just got the Republican Party running such whack jobs in some of these really big critical Senate races and the kind of whack job that even in today's Republican Party is a lot of baggage. You know, people kind of like Herschel Walker, who's making headlines for really nutty things every other day or, you know, Oz, those kind of people who it's just a little head scratching. Well, it's funny because, you know, there's there's almost two categories of these kind of candidates. There's one, like this guy Mastriano, who's running for governor in mm. Pennsylvania, who is, you know, he's a state senator or like in the state legislature. He's, you know, kind of very right wing Christian nationalist. He was actually at the insurrection. I guess there's some question that maybe he held back and didn't, you know, cross the barricades or whatever. But he's fully that guy. Then you have other people like Herschel Walker and Dr. Oz that. I'm not even sure they were Republicans before they got into this, right? I mean, they're just Trump's friends. They're they're people that Trump picked, basically, in both those cases. There is no way that, like, Herschel Walker is the nominee in Georgia. He's he's not in politics. Again, I'm not even sure. Is he even, like, a Republican or, or anything? I'm not saying he's a Democrat, just whatever. And, and, like, with Walker, the things that he's... You know, it's 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 not like he's saying uh, he's not even getting in trouble for things that are like obviously political. He's just he's just nuts, and he's you know he he's uh, he's got this. Um, I mean, let's put it wildly. He's not he's not terribly well versed on contemporary politics, and he has this you know history of violence towards uh, uh, intimate partners, and you know the 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 you know. <laughs> The sort of the best case I've seen for him is that he suffers from some sort of, you know, football related uh, neurological trauma. But I mean, that's not a great thing for as a Senate candidate, right? I mean, that may be may think, well, okay, we'll put we'll put his actions into some kind of context if that's true. I mean, I don't think we know that's true. Just because he played football doesn't mean that that's that that's the case. But again, I'm only violent because of something that happened to me in the past. I mean, again, okay, maybe don't run for Senate. You know, maybe that's not maybe that's not a good a good uh, maybe it's not a good fit, right? And then you've got Doctor Oz, and I, I can't even think of anything he's he he made this one statement about abortion, which was sort of like 
you know, it's so wonderful to bring a child into the world and every child counts. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, like, you know, I think everybody's kind of on board with that. And, but, but he was clearly, it was clearly meant to be sort of kind of a pro life thing. Um, but I think, you know, it's one of these things where, you know, Dr. Oz was just probably just pro choice until. Trump called him up and pushed him to, you know, kind of wound him up on on the Senate idea. So, so you've got these weird, these weird things where, in some of these cases, you have people who are just super right wing, and in other cases, just weirdos who Trump picked, and there you are. Yeah, I mean, and it's funny because specifically the Oz Fetterman race is going to be such an interesting illustration of how much Twitter is real life or how much what happens on Twitter bleeds out. Because, I mean, almost every day you're seeing a tweet from the Fetterman campaign kind of go viral. And to give them credit, it's for good reason. They've been really funny and really creative. I think my favorite one that I saw recently is the Oz campaign did some kind of apocalyptic looking graphic of like, where is John Fetterman? Kind of trying to build on the, you know, his stroke. Thing. Um, and then the Fetterman campaign took the top half of the picture, which is just him standing in this kind of like final battle of a Marvel movie background and made it the, the banner of his Twitter account. Right. So, you know, it's it's stuff like that every day. Yeah, I mean, it's hard. It's, it, it is funny because it's clear that, you know, when, when we first um, when we first heard that Fetterman had had this stroke. It was pu- it was sort of presented as, and again, I'm kind of out of my knowledge area here, but uh, you know, there's a, such a thing called an ischemic stroke, which is a, a very minor stroke, and I'm not saying it's not a big deal, but it's there are these small transient events that are a big deal, but when you have one, it's it's usually not going to have many big you know impact, and it's clear that what he had was not that that this did have impact on him and uh they have been clear that he's you know they claim and i'm i have no reason to dispute that he's you know kind of making steady progress but you know that there was some you know slowed down his talking and you know blah 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 so that's kind of out there and that's real that's not a great that's not a great thing uh in the in the, in the final months of the of the election uh but they do they have also um and at some point, you know, he's going to have to kind of get out there a little more publicly than he is than he is now. He's made some, uh, you know, limited steps, but they've really zeroed in on on Doctor Oz's thing, which is kind of like he lives in. He's a Richie from New Jersey, and he doesn't even like what is it? His his address is like his 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 wife's parents' house or something. So like, how it 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 seems like. Most of those things, but most of the trolling is just about that he's from New Jersey. And there was this, what was it, that I guess um, a month or two back, he, was it July 4th? I can't remember. He did this kind of video of himself, Oz, of, uh, hey, we're here, July, you know, on 4th of July, or maybe it was, you know, uh, veteran. I don't know what day it was. And he's there in his, in his mansion in New Jersey. Which is not great as a carpetbagger, you know. At least like buy a mansion in Pennsylvania, you know. Put up, put on a show at least, right? I know so. he was doing stuff like that, or like he went to get cheesesteaks from like the famously touristy cheese place 
cheesesteak places in philly you know no it's just uh, there's just it's in and uh, like right now when you said that about the the twitter background i pulled up his his uh uh twitter site and uh they now they've got steve van zandt doing like uh i i I don't have the volume on but some sort of troll you know new jersey based Mm -hmm. trolling of dr oz and it's just it's just endless because they're so especially for people who if you know if you're not from this part of the country there's so many there's so much history and metaphors and you know more or less good-natured ribbing between these two states particularly where they uh jut up against each other philly south jersey all this it's just endless it's just endless and and oz has put himself at the uh at the center of that it's kind of funny because in some ways the fetterman campaign almost reminds me of like early obama just in that the use of technology in campaigning felt very new you know it felt kind of like i think the reason people get such a kick out of the fetterman stuff is it is clever but it's also really just kind of taking advantage of twitter in a way that campaigns haven't really gotten used to yet well, I think it's 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 sort of I mean it's funny. One thing I'm looking at now is he just in like the last hour or so, I guess today is New Jersey Day. Like in New Jersey it's the state day. So it has it has Fetterman and his wife in this little video, which again, I'm not listening to the uh listening to the sound because we're cause we're doing this. You know, them saying, Hey, it's a great it's a it's, the quote is today is a very big day for Dr. Oz. It's New <laughs> Jersey Day. And I'm looking here and like it you know, they have the sort of like, you know, the transcription at the bottom of the commercial. You know, it's almost his whole here. Today is a very big day for Dr. Oz. It's New Jersey Day. Day. Holiday recognizing Dr. Oz's home state in a very special occasion. To celebrate, we are launching a new billboard in a few days at the Betsy Ross Bridge to welcome visitors to Pennsylvania. So the next time he crosses the bridge back into PA, there will be a beautiful billboard to greet him. To Dr. Oz and all his fellow New Jerseyans like I was in a past life. Happy Happy New Jersey Day! You know, just again, (laughs) it's it's it's, uh, and but to your point about about his use of social media, all sorts of. All sorts of, I mean, all candidates are on social media, um, and we know what Trump did with social media. But I think what stands out with Fetterman is he's doing it in a way that like an influencer would do it, yep. not a candidate, where you kind of grab onto some little like, you know, little meme or kind of thing and you just kind of, you're just like ragging on him constantly, right? Just nonstop. And so he's, and and. That is the thing that for all of the horror of Trump, in his own way, he was a genius with Twitter in the way that in one of the things that um, one saw back in 2016 is, and, and this is something that I don't think will ever quite go back, that in a conventional campaign, you've got a communications office. And if something happens, the communications office decides like, okay, do we, do we put the candidate out for a little, a little availability? Do we put out a statement? Do we do this? Do we do that? It's a whole process. You don't just, you know, the candidate just doesn't go off at the hip. And what Trump was able to do is, you know, Trump says one thing and they're kind of like, okay, do we do, we do this? Do we that? And while they're thinking about it, Trump does the next thing. 
and the next thing. And, and, and he just, it, it's like sticking a stick into, into like the spokes in someone's bicycle tire. He just upended them. And, and, you know, in its own way, Fetterman's kind of moving the ball forward in a way that I think we will see more of. Because you kind of, once you see someone do it, you're like, oh, wow, I'm, I'm get, the other guy's going to get slaughtered. You right. got to gotta be there. So just zooming out real quick before we move on from this, what's kind of your initial impression of why, you know, the Senate has kind of evened out and people's prognosticating, but the House is so out of hand? Do you think it is just a mostly a candidate issue? Well, I think, you know, there's always this, there's always this pattern where in, this, in Senate races, who the candidate is just matters a lot more yep. because you, you see them, right? Most people are still not going to know ca- quite who the challengers are, even in their own district. They're just not, you know, they, they don't get the same amount of press attention. So who the candidate is matters a lot. And I think there is, there is no one across the political spectrum who would not say that the Republicans have nominated a lot of really bad candidates. I mean, either people who are just terrible candidates like Oz or Walker is, or ones that may be in some abstract sense good candidates, but they're just far, way far right. Um, so that is playing a role. But I think, I, I think there's the other part of this is that there has been a movement in both houses. In, in the numbers, in the conventional wisdom. It's just that the Senate was always relatively close, right? It was, I mean, there was, people thought they'd lose it, but there was, even at, even at the nadir, it was not 100%. It was not seen as 100% Republicans were going to take the Senate. That was still going to be a challenge, um, you know, blah, 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 blah. So a, a media movement for the Senate moved it to now where people are saying, oh, it's like, you know, a, a, a jump ball. Um, and similar movement in the House. House was just in a lot worse shape for Democrats. So I think that's part of it. Um, but one thing, a lot of this, there's, there's one really very interesting thing is that if you look right now, you know, uh, Nate Silver's site, 538, they have in their like, you know, statistical, their probability charts for each one. They have this thing where you can look at it with sort of the full stuff, which is polls, the expert opinion, the history, the fund rate, all the different things that go into the mix. And that shows you one thing. And right now on the site, uh, as of yesterday, it showed 50-50 on the Senate and 85-15 on the House. So like real bad for the Democrats in the House, right? Um, However, and it, those moved like, you know, one number towards the Democrats today. But the interesting thing is that if you go to the, if you adjust it, so you say, I want to see the, the probabilities if we're only looking at the polls and something pretty dramatic happens, the Senate goes to like two to one odds for the Democrats, like 67, 33 or something like that. And uh, the House goes to like 70, 30 for the Republicans. So what you see is there is still this big gap um, between sort of conventional wisdom, history versus what the actual polls are telling us. And, uh, you know, 60, 70, 30, those are kind of the probabilities that Hillary had in 2016. You know, you'd rather be 70, 30 than 30, 70, but 30, 70 can win. Um, so I think it's all these things that 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 there's just this very strong conventional wisdom against the Democrats in a lot of cases for good reason. Um, but we're in a very weird time, and there's just all sorts of things are not how they normally are. So 
I think that the conventional wisdom got somewhat ahead of itself. I think Roe is making a significant difference. There was a an article out with a new poll this morning that said that the January 6 hearings are really souring independent voters on Trump. And that is making independent voters approach the midterm less as a referendum on like, is the country in a good place or a bad place? Or like, do I like Biden or not? And more of like, do I want the Republicans or Democrats to be in charge? And that's helping too. So I think all of those things are coming together. And, and, and what they tell us big picture is that the Democrats could, could hold on to the whole Congress in November. I actually think it is, more li- it is more likely than not that they will hold the Senate and even add a senator or two. Um, it's also possible in the House a much bigger challenge in the house. It's it's not likely now, but it's possible. So we're not we're not in that mode that I think um certainly the conventional wisdom was back in mid-spring and I think most of us were in mid-spring of sort of like Democrats are going to get destroyed and that's just it is what it is, you know, too bad. I would like to add lest we miss an opportunity to kind of come combat the whole Mitch McConnell is the perfect politician thing that, you know, when we're talking about the Senate, we're not talking about very many seats. It's a handful. And part of the reason why this is not an easier lift for Republicans is because McConnell's kind of handpicked candidate said no in a lot of instances. And we've talked about that on the show before. But a good example of it is in New Hampshire. You know, if Sununu had run against Maggie Hassan, that might even be favored for him to win that state. That would have been a big deal. And now Hassan is running against a bunch of like kind of B-list people that no one's really ever heard of, you know. So there's alongside kind of the the bad candidate thing, there's also the candidate recruitment failures that left potentially competitive seats more comfortably in Democratic hands. Right, right, right. No, that 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 totally makes sense. Yeah. Okay. So now let's talk a little bit about the couple of new data points that we got on the Dobbs leak. This was a CNN reporting um, that kind of confirmed how we've been talking about the leak, which was Roberts was going to try most acutely with Kavanaugh to a lesser degree with Barrett to try to sway them onto his side with the Roe decision so as to not overturn Roe. There was a lot of knowledge among anti-abortion circles that he was going to try to do that. Um, So, you know, that's basically all we know, more or less. But it does kind of seem to contribute to our theory that this leak makes way more sense if it comes from the right, because you know, it basically kills those attempts to win those justices over. You know, it makes everyone freaked out. It makes them want to issue the final decision quickly so as to avoid any more kind of skullduggery or or leakage or anything else. Um, And as we saw, ultimately, you know, not that Roberts would have been successful. Nobody knows that. But Kavanaugh and Barrett, you know, joined in the majority. Yeah. And that, and that, that report, I think, adds more circumstantial evidence to what a lot of us have um, a lot of us have assumed, which was the logic of it was that it came from the right um, as opposed to some uh, you know out of control progressive clerk who um, you know who, who, who did this and I think that um, you know because what that CNN story said was that you know uh, Roberts was doing you know, as we know, Roberts wanted to, uh, you know, okay that Mississippi law, 
which uh, uh, put a restriction on abortion past 15 weeks, which is kind of, you know, the absolute minimum that you could hold on to some version of Roe, but he did not actually want to overturn Roe. And he worked, he, he tried very hard to uh, pull one of the of the Dobbs justices over the line. But basically, once the decision was leaked, it was just impossible because it was it was once, you know, whether presumably it was going to be like Kavanaugh. But once it was out there, the kind of like the prize is in reach. There was just no way that Kavanaugh could, you know, could shift. So it, 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 it adds, um, you know, we can't know you know, sometimes people do something that is the reverse of the actual logic of the situation, but it certainly provides more, um, you know, more uh, evidence of what we thought that it was it was someone from the right on the court releasing this to lock in that decision to kind of you know make it absolutely impossible for Kavanaugh to stray. Yeah, I mean, the question continues, too. It's just like, who was the original source? You know, I think everyone so quickly jumped to the clerk thing, which like I don't really understand because the clerk's position to me always felt much more tenuous than the justice position. Like, they're not going anywhere. I mean, obviously, look at Clarence Thomas. He was like basically one degree removed from involvement in the insurrection and it doesn't matter. So I'm not really sure why we kind of jumped to thinking it's going to be these like top of their Yale law class who have like fought tooth and nail to get this, who would put it on the line. It seems kind of more likely to me that it came from, I don't know, Alito or something. Yeah, totally. Well, and I think that, um, and well, and also there's also a lot of support staff. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, like, you know, if someone's been working there for 30 years, is this, are they really going to jeopardize their job and all, you know, all that kind of stuff. But the thing is with the, um, not only, not only is, are the justices not going anywhere, Right. Um, and, and obviously they have lots of incentive, but also no one's going to investigate them. Like if it's if it's if it's Sam Alito and, uh, you know, that marshal of the of the Supreme Court guy or whatever, or whatever, like, you know, sort of, you know, kind of chief bailiff, like from people's court, they have who runs things at the Supreme Court. If they sort of assigned him to get to the bottom of it, I think he says, dude, fuck off. Like I'm I'm a Supreme Court justice. Like, go to hell. Yeah. I mean, and this, even if this might sound kind of tin hatty, it's just, it's just not. Like, we, we have proof kind of that a lot of the text in Alito's decision came right from this one, like, anti-abortion group. I mean, there's, there's a lot of connection between the right-wing judicial world and these various, like, interest groups. So, anyway, that's kind of the new data point we have there. And now, also on abortion, we have the big feature piece um, that I've been working on that Josh teased at the beginning which, you know, we've just been seeing a lot of this refrain of like, we won't go back or the court is bringing us back to the 1970s. You know, that's been kind of the sentiment. And I do think there's a piece of it that hasn't gotten that much airtime, which is that in a lot of ways, it's worse than that. It's you're asking healthcare providers to go back to, you know, 1972 and to ignore the 15, the 50 years of medical progress since then, which have both, you know, separately made abortion incredibly safe and effective. And in the years after Roe, you know, they swapped out old methods for ones that were a lot safer and more humane and made it an outpatient procedure and all of that. And then that kind of enabled abortion to 
be woven into other kinds of medical procedures that aren't just specifically, you know, ending an unwanted pregnancy. And that comes into play with other reproductive care like, you know, fetal anomaly, fetal anomalies and, and miscarriage care, both of which, you know, had developments that kind of advanced a pace with abortion becoming safer, which is, you know, you have ultrasounds being widely used in American hospitals by the end of the 70s. You have the development of medical abortion in the 90s, which was then approved in the United States in 2000. And so all of this stuff grows together. You know, medical advancements don't happen in a silo. They all kind of work together. And once you have something that works for one thing, maybe it works for another. And then it just kind of tentacles out even to such things like cancer treatment. One out of every thousand pregnant women develops cancer. And you just can't do a lot of cancer treatment without harming or killing a fetus. And now we're asking cancer patients who live in states where they can't get abortions to say, either you go through the full gamut of the the treatment regimen for your cancer, or you don't get treated for your cancer because it'll hurt the fetus. I mean, that is a barbaric choice and one that we haven't had to make for 50 years because of all of these advancements. So it really is, I think, worse than just, oh, we're going back in time because there's nothing else that you would say medicine has improved by leaps and bounds since the 70s. But you, I don't know, someone suffering from rheumatoid arthritis, you no longer get the benefit of those advancements. We're just going to like close our eyes and pretend we don't have them anymore. Right, right, right. It's funny. I I was um, around the time that the leak happened. I was talking to someone who... uh, I was talking to someone who is from one of these purple states where, you know, could go either way, basically. Um, And this person was saying how the, basically the major teaching hospitals in their state, it was going to, I'm not sure it would, it would shut those medical programs down, but basically uh, I mean, obviously um, gynecology and reproductive health is a, is a very basic part of what you learn when you go to medical school. You know, even if you're not a specialist in 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 gynecology or the sort of, you know, the obstetrics, you know, blah 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 blah. And that if you if if you can't basically if it is illegal to practice abortions in those states, there's a whole series of things that you can't teach, that you can't do. And it's not just abortions. It's mm-hmm. things that are adjacent to abortion. And then, uh, so any doctor who is at a teaching hospital who like teaches obstetrics or teaches gynecology, they're probably going to leave and go to a different teaching hospital in some other state. And again, I can't remember... Um, I don't remember like all the details, but it was it was it was basically like that. It, it kind of put the whole, um, you know, uh, medical medical school programs in some jeopardy. Just and and that's something that hadn't even kind of occurred to me, right? I mean, sort of, uh, you know, you sort of figure, sure. I mean, they can just teach, you know, give you an MD, but they never teach you to, to perform an abortion. But it's, it, you know, it's not that simple. Right. It's, as you say, it's deeply woven into all sorts of uh, things that are adjacent to ab- abortion or things that don't even seem like they would be adjacent to abortion, but are. So it's, it has all of these, um, it has all of these uh, knock-on effects that, that, 
many of us would not think of. It's a good point. And it also, you know, in 1965, 17% of pregnancy and childbirth related deaths were from abortion, which is boggling to me considering how physically traumatic pregnancy and childbirth are on the body, you know, still. And now we're at the point by by 1995, 0.3% of abortions resulted in complications serious enough that they required hospitalization. I mean, that's the thing that just kills me about this is abortion is a huge medical success story. It went from being a procedure where you might get really hurt and you might die. And at the very least, it's going to be really painful and really bloody to being for most abortions in the United States, a two pill regimen you can take at home and then you have some cramping and that's that. I mean, it's like for a country that prides itself on kind of innovation and progress, it is a sterling example of that. But you don't even really, even that fact is not uncontested in all corners. You still have tons of anti-abortion people saying that abortion is unsafe and that it uh, threatens a woman's fertility, that it causes breast cancer, all of which is untrue. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah, it's 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 interesting because it's you know it 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 sort of makes sense that if you have a procedure that is illegal and sure we know that it that it, it you know we know that there were lots of extremely unsafe sort of DIY mm -hmm. back of an alley abortion and then there were also you know kind of uh, facilities such as it is where that were kind of not public, you know, kind of underground, but at least where there was, you know, a, a, a semi-sterile kind of facility that would that would practice abortions even, uh, you know, kind of against the law. But in that context, you're not going to have like any medical experts who are kind of saying, all right, could we do it this way? Could we do it that way? Can we do a study like this? Doing it this way has fewer complications and stuff like that. So even though... Um, you know, relatively speaking, compared to like, you know, open heart surgery or whatever the, you know, the most super complex surgery is that an abortion is a, is, you know, I feel like I'm going to get hit on this, you know, relatively straightforward doesn't mean that kind of just, you know, someone who sets up shop and wants to do them is going to have any idea how to do it in a way that is safe or doesn't have complications and all that kind of stuff. So just, just bringing it out of the shadows, having mm -hmm. it be something that could be submitted to um, the kind of systematic, uh, you know, to modern medicine, how modern medicine works, where you get experts, you, um, you, you know, it sounds bad to learn by trial and error, but that's sort of what modern medicine is. You mm -hmm. do studies, right? Kind of how, how safe is this? Is, is it more safe when you do it this different way? That's just, that's how modern medicine works. Yeah. And I mean, training is hand in hand in that, like you said, before Roe, training and performing abortions was just not a thing. So doctors didn't really know how to do it. And by the way, that was an issue then too, because there's a lot of stuff that involves abortion procedures and abortion care that isn't just kind of elective ending of a uh, ending of a pregnancy. Um, but the training also involves, you know, knowing how to look for complications and caring for them. And that's all part of how it became so safe. Um, and, you know, now we're entering a time where a, a good chunk of the country is not going to get to use those medical advancements. Um, and it's just going to unleash a massive wave of suffering on all kinds of people, even the people that anti-abortion 
uh, proponents say that they don't want to punish. The net is going to be wide. We're already seeing completely, you know, knock on effects like there's this drug that is used for some cancer therapies. It it helps with chronic inflammation and pain. So like 90% of people with uh, arthritis use it. It's just really common and it also can induce abortion. So people are already having trouble uh, filling their prescriptions. You know, just the knock-on effects of this are going to be enormous. And I just, I don't love the characterization of like, oh, these are unforeseen. We had no way of knowing because if that's true, that's just even such a more profound commentary on how deeply these anti-abortion people like don't care about the suffering that particularly women will go through when this happens. Right. Right. Okay. So um, let's end on the filibuster, the ever present part of our political system that is currently the reason that the Supreme Court gets to decide on this anti-abortion regime for the country, uh, you know, for the next generation, at least if, if nothing else changes. So, uh, like Josh said, we have kind of the pretty polished version of our tracker up on the website. Um, we, you know, yesterday I, I heard from Senator Tammy Duckworth's office asking, you know, giving me some more information to kind of change her position on the charter or clarify her position. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it's, uh, it's coming along. It looks really good. Yeah. And her position, even even though, um, you know, we don't know exactly uh you know, what What prompted her to clarify her position. We found out about it on Monday, on Tuesday, like, uh, Monday, I think. When Monday, I heard back Tuesday, from them Tuesday, yesterday. Think, yep, Tuesday. Right, Tuesday. And, and she had made this announcement on Twitter on Friday. So whatever motivated it, it was definitely part of the, you know, whether it had anything to do with what we at TPM are doing is definitely part of this kind of growing push to line senators up on, you know, on this, on this point. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I do think in this push, you know, it's kind of connected to the, all the horror stories I just talked about, you know, because I just think a lot of people have kind of picked their position on this issue based on where their party is. And it is the kind of thing that when you think about it just a little bit, you realize taking the anti-abortion stance is being willing to put up with so much collateral damage. You know, it's really, I think they like to weigh it as the life of a child. What could be more precious than that? But that's just, I know it's really convenient for the anti-abortion movement to imagine this is a siloed off issue. It exists only at Planned Parenthood uh, clinics and it exists only for young women who don't want to give birth. And while I think a lot of people would argue that that's enough, that's, that that's enough to have abortion access, it's just so much broader. And a lot of these anti-abortion people just have no idea what they're talking about in terms of the medical processes. You know, like one of the things I wrote about is ectopic pregnancies and how ultrasounds hugely advance doctors' abilities to locate them when they're undiagnosed, which is when an egg implants outside the uterus. And that egg has no chance of viability. The only thing that will happen, because they're usually in the fallopian tubes, is that if they're allowed to grow, the tube will rupture and cause massive internal hemorrhaging and potentially death for, for the woman. And you have some like state lawmakers saying, well, why can't they just move it into the uterus? And it's like, we literally do not have the technology to do that, you know? Right, 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 right. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's, and, and there's a lot of, uh, there have been a lot of um, in the 
pro-life movement's effort to sort of position itself post Dobbs, like, oh, it's not a big deal. It's not, you know, it's not, it's not like any women are gonna, you know, if a woman's life is really endangered, that's mm-hmm. that's different, and that's not going to be a problem. Um, you 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 definitely or and many many of these people saying, oh, you know, there, there's no one saying you can't, uh, you know, terminate an ectopic pregnancy. But in fact, there's lots of these laws that specifically uh, outlaw it. And and in the, um, you know, legislative history uh, of the, you know, in the legislative history of these laws, often they say, oh, don't, don't try pulling it that you, that you just claim an ectopic pregnancy is an easy way to get an abortion. You know, so, so, Many of these things, I mean, look, there are, there are people who are, you know, down the line, anti-abortion, and they know the tech, you know, all the, ins, all the medical and technological ins and outs, and they're, you know, consistent as far as it goes in kind of in, in you know, being knowledgeable in a sense. But those aren't the people who are passing laws at mm-hmm. the state level. Usually it's, you know, the kind of guy who... Uh, some middle-aged guy who owns an auto dealership and then got elected to the state legislator, le- state legislature, and he's saying, you know, uh, no way, no how. Don't give me this excuse that it's an ectopic pregnancy. Right. I mean, and part of that issue is that you've got these people writing legislation in political messaging language. And even if, say, the lawmaker didn't intend for ectopic pregnancies to be tied in, if you're not explicit and not using medical terms, that's enough to just create a cloud of confusion where you have hospitals and doctors really afraid that they're going to get thwacked with like, you know, sometimes jail time, yep. sometimes enormous yep. fines. And that's enough to have a situation where you can tell this woman has an ectopic pregnancy. The only possible end result of that is suffering and death for the woman and still you pause everything to go like consult with your lawyer and make sure you're not exposed here. And that's enough to do huge damage, even if these laws are not kind of being as intentionally malicious enough to target this, you know, the the ignorance is just as bad. Yeah, no, there's many of these cases where you have, I mean, we've even seen, um, you know, there's been a little less press attention to it over the last week or so. But, um, a week ago, there were a number of cases in the news of women who had, you know, uh, partial miscarriages, you know, these kind of things where if you could provide an abortion, it happens, you address it, it's done. But they were basically kind of letting it play out where there's lots of hemorrhaging and this. And at least in those um, in those handful of stories, uh, n- none of the women died. You know, they got through it. But that's not, a, you know, that's a tough standard, right? Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, there's a lot of suffering and a lot of fear and, and all that kind of stuff. But what it shows is, as you say, even when it's not, um, even when the laws are not constructed, maybe in a intentionally malicious fashion, and even in cases where the people who wrote the laws might say, okay, look, this, this person obviously needs to terminate the pregnancy. That's not how it works because the the doctor is like, you know, is 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 this danger enough? You know, does this count as the life is in danger? Well, what's your medical opinion? I'd say like ninety five percent chance she'll pull through this. You know, if that's your 
spouse or if it's you or if it's your partner or if it's your daughter, 5% is way too much, right? Mm-hmm. And, and you just, so, so these laws ca- um, cast this penumbra of uncertainty. And from one perspective, you can say, look, the doctor should just do the right thing and, and take the consequences. But like, doctor doesn't want to go to jail. You know, doctor has a family. Um, and, you know, it just, there is no way, even if you think abortion should be illegal except when the health of the mother is endangered or something like that. There's just no way to construct these laws because medical stuff is uncertain. Right. Right. How much risk is, 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 is okay. And I mean, on the point of, you know, the doctor should just do it, which I'm sympathetic to, as the doctor, there's just no history here that you can kind of depend on the reasonableness of your Republican regime state being like, this woman was dying, so I did my job. Because the anti-abortion movement, a part of it that I just think really gets like blurred out a lot of the time, has a history of being not only hostile towards abortion providers, but violent and murderous towards abortion providers. Right. The the animus there is enormous and driving all these laws, which is why they're so punitive. So, you know, the kind of idea, well, I'm going to do my job and now and hope that, you know, later a judge will kind of realize that this is part of being a doctor. This is the job. I just don't think there's like a very solid foundation to make that assumption that you won't be made the sacrificial lamb for, you know, quote unquote, killing the unborn as a, as a sin that far outweighs letting a woman die when you didn't have to. Well, and the, the other thing is that, um, it's in most cases, you know, it's not, it's not the legislators. Mm -hmm. It's the, it's the local DA. Yep. Often who wants to make a point, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, that's how, that's how, I mean, some states are different, but you know, the, the system is there's like a county prosecutor and that person. And, and, you know, if you're in a big city, that county prosecutor is probably a Democrat and uh, is going to probably weigh in the direction of like, you know, not whether or not they're, you know, maybe they're actually refusing to prosecute, but they're going to weigh in that direction. But you're a little outside the city. You have a, you know, Republican prosecutor who wants to kind of make a, you know, make a name for him or herself. Uh, you know, you have that case in Indiana with, uh, you know, that was the attorney general. The attorney general doesn't prosecute these things. Although, you know, in some states or some, there are some cases where the attorney general can kind of grab jurisdiction or whatever. But in any case, um, you know, in that case, that guy wasn't even in charge of prosecuting. Like that guy doesn't even have anything to do with it really. But he was happy to jump forward and make a bunch of legal threats and stuff like that. So yeah, I mean, you know, you're like, um, certainly in, in, you know, in more red states, in some like, you know, suburban or rural area, it's not just, you know, you're not, uh, you are not, um, you are not on the line with some like, you know, uh, kind of Solomonic, you know, person who's going to kind of weigh all the things and make a choice, you're probably like, you know, it's, it's an elected district attorney who like, and who wants to put themselves in that situation? Right. You know, so it's, 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 it's tough. In, in a way, they should kind of just, just do the right thing and take the consequences. But I mean, how many consequences do you and your job have to take to maybe go to jail? 
on, you know, with something with semi-routine things. So it's 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 tough. It's tough. Bleak. Yes. So I guess that is about uh, about all we got for this week. Remember, we're off next week, so uh, no great content. You'll have to fend for yourselves for quality podcast content. Uh, remember that the Josh Marshall Podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. You can get twenty five percent off at Grady's Cold Brew dot com with promo code TPM. And that is it. All right. See you in two weeks. See you in two weeks. The Josh Marshall Podcast is hosted by me, TPM reporter Kate Riga, and TPM founder, editor-in-chief Josh Marshall. The show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song, and thanks to all our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, and subscribe wherever you listen. Listen.